Hello, hello, and welcome back to yet another episode of In Defense of Liberation, the show that is working towards and educating about a true people's liberation movement, and hopefully one day soon a true proletarian revolution. But of course, as we mentioned on the show, we all know that that hopefully, that hope is wholly dependent on the actions that we take. And that hopefully can be turned into a reality, and it must be. Um, If this is your first time stopping by, I am Josh. Uh, Thank you for tuning in. I hope that you enjoy the show. Uh, This one's going to be a little bit... We're going to try to keep it focused on, you know, the same topic. But I'm going to do my best to try to understand and explain a very important topic, a topic that has much historical, philosophical, and uh, kind of contextual, I guess you'd say, difficulties, and also one, you know, that really each and every one of us are trying to figure out Each and every one of us in our own locality are trying to understand how exactly does a revolution develop. And so that's what I want to talk about today. And I'm going to do my best to try to explain my own understanding and what I think. Um, And, you know, maybe some questions that I have going forward that I'm sure other people might also have. And uh, I would absolutely love if anybody who, you know, listens to the show would reach out and say, you know, what it is they feel was correct and incorrect about my analysis, because I really like getting emails or, you know, DMs where they're like, you know, I really liked what you had to say here, but I don't know if I agreed with this. I don't know if, you know, I fully understand this. I was wondering if you could answer some questions. And that's always the moment where I'm like put on the spot. And that's where a lot of my learning is done because trying to like answer that question for, you know, a friend or uh, a comrade is like difficult, you know, uh, whatever the question may be. Um, And when you're kind of forced in that moment to come to like a conclusive answer that explains well enough that the other person can understand, it's very difficult to be like, incorrect or short, you know what I mean? So it really forces me to think and I really like those moments. So if you folks like the show and you really do want to engage, you know, please reach out. I I beg you. <laughs> I've liked the few emails I got. I got another email the other day uh, from someone who says they like the show and they feel that uh, other than, you know, the fact that I can't really stay on topic and there's not normally like a specific... Uh, discussion or a specific point or a specific topic that I'm making every single episode uh, that they, you know, tend to like the show. And that's what I figure, you know, I'm really, really bad at that. And I've really been working on it. That's why this episode, I'm going to try to stay as focused as I can. But the difficulty is threefold, my friend. (laughs) First and foremost, I don't really plan this shit out. Um, I need to get better at it because it's kind of getting to a point where even though it's nice to have a lot of the same discussions, I want to have better discussions. I want to have guests on the show. I want to, you know, have specific topics that you folks enjoy. 
The second issue is folks don't reach out and tell me what they want to know. Folks don't reach out and tell me what they want me to do an episode about. Folks don't reach out and tell me whether or not they like the show. So I'm just some asshole driving in my car to work. And so because of that, I'm just going to talk about whatever is on my mind. And if you knew me personally, you would know that the rambleness and the inability for me to stay on topic is 100% a personality trait of mine. <coughs> and so, you know, I apologize, but it will it will come with time. And I hope that either A, you stick around, or B, you, turn, you tune back in a couple months down the road when hopefully it's a bit better. But um, the third reason why normally this can be difficult is because I'm often allegedly high. Um, and that is because marijuana is legal in my state. And also, it's really cool and helps me in ways that pharmaceuticals did not. And so, if a uh, side effect of that is I'm a little silly, goofy boy, then you know what? I, uh, I guess I can't really be too mad at that. But I know nobody's shaming me. I know nobody's upset. I'm just merely saying as to why, you know, this happened. So, I hope you folks... Uh, we'll keep listening and uh, keep checking in and letting me know what you think of the show. Uh, hit me up for whatever. You know, I like talking to people throughout the day, texting, Discord, etc. So, like, if you want someone to talk to about the shit you're learning about, fucking hit me up. Um, you can find me on all my social media, and my email is indefensiveliberation at gmail.com. But now that we kind of got that off the top, Like I said, I want to talk about the development of a revolution. Um, And to do this, you know, as someone who has not participated in a revolution, it's, you know, quite the task. And I wouldn't say that, again, anything that I'm going to say in here is law. Nothing that I'm saying now is gold. You know what I'm saying? This is my understanding of it at this point at 8.53 in the morning on December 19th, which I think... Today is either December 19th or 20th. But anyways, December 19th. Yeah. Um, So this is where my understanding is at, right? And that's really where I want to start. So as we know, right, society, the structure, the fundamental foundation to the way, say, North America functions, right? All of that is structured in a specific way in order to fulfill a specific objective. This is understandably true because if we look at societies, say, during the early slave societies in ancient Greece in ancient Rome, if we look at feudal societies in the German states, in Europe, in China, in Japan, all throughout Asia, if we look at the developing empires in Asia, Europe, the Americas, we see that each one of them is built a little differently and has its own different specifics 
meant to be able to take hold of the situation and move that situation forward to achieve given objectives for whoever it is that is in control of that society, whether it's an emperor, whether it's a king, whether it's a parliament and, you know, uh, uh, executive branch, whether it's the prime minister or whether it's the president, whether it's the ruling class of capitalists, the ruling class of feudal lords, or the ruling class of slave owners. They each have their own particular forms, but they each have a quite universal essence. Now, there's two things I want to hit on with this point. First and foremost, at a given point in a certain society's development, it will look different than both another society at that point of development and the same society at a different point of development. For example, the way in which the settler colonial empire was able to structure itself during its first settlements in Virginia looks quite different than the way in which it combats and controls the situation here now on Turtle Island today. It also looks quite different from the way in which it was structured when we had our quote-unquote revolution here. So how did this revolution, how do other revolutions develop? This is the second point I want to hit on because one of the most important things to the actual development of a revolutionary movement is the consciousness, the understanding of the people who they themselves will take part in the revolution. So Obviously, every single revolution, every single uprising, every single rebellion, again, has its own particular forms, tactics, and strategies. But many are similar in the sense that they intend to rid themselves of the current status quo, rid themselves of the current structure of society in order to build or develop what they consider a new one. Now, this is the important point. The consciousness is what dedic- uh, is what uh, um, the consciousness is what dictates what type of revolution this will be, as well as does the historical time and place. There are many, and I wish I had something to drink because wow, does my throat hurt. There are many, excuse my coughing, I'm going to do a lot of coughing, I guess. There are many things within society that have relations, but also have contradictions. One clear one is the way in which society is proposed to be and to uh, be structured. 
And then there is the reality of that society's structure. There are contradictions, of course, and relationships between the ruling class and the working class. The ruling class cannot exist without the working class. And the working class cannot exist without the ruling class. At least in the way in which we discuss them now. And the contradictions between the ruling class and the working class are not the only contradictions. There are also contradictions among the ruling classes and the working classes of a given society. For example, I'm reading this book, which seems to be pretty good. I mentioned it in my last uh, podcast. It's called OSS, The Secret History of America's First Central Intelligence Agency. Now, the uh, Commission of Information was uh, created, I believe, in 1924 under the New Deal uh, uh, legislation that was passed by, uh, what's-his-face? Who gives a shit anyways, right? FDR, right? <clears throat> he passes that, and basically what it is, is it's the first, like, on-paper organization intended to collect information <coughs> and to, you know, really kind of involve themselves in the things happening, not only here in uh, the United States, but also across the world. It was started by this guy, Donovan. And Donovan basically went to all the different uh, echelons of the ruling class. I mean, there he goes and he gets people from Time Magazine. He goes and gets people from Macy's in New York. He goes and gets people from the War Department. He goes and gets people from, you know, former... Uh, anti-fascist and socialist groups that were exiled. He 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 had Oblinsky or Ol, Ol, Obolinsky, I think his name is, who was a general in Russia, uh, who was a, a, a white guard uh, against the revolution, and uh, oh, someone else from there, Saborsky, I think his name is who was also a counter-revolutionist in Russia. He gets them to be a part of the OSS. He um, basically gets a a blank check from the government to go all over the place and do what he can to, you know, advance the democratic wants of the patriotic American people, obviously, of course. Basically, what that means is he gets to go all around the world gallivanting and causing death and destruction and, uh, you know, destabilization and decentralization and uh, all kinds of, uh, you know, suffering at the behest of the U.S. government, you know? But, of course, never truly for the U.S. government, because this is the point I wanted to make about the contradictions among the ruling class. In reading this book, one of the most common things is that all of these different OSS members, they're constantly doing their own shit. Like, this one guy is in Italy, and he thinks that he's going to get the the anti-fascists and the radicals to be able to have an insurrection to take power from uh, the... uh, ruling uh, monarch at the time uh, who had sided with uh, the uh, fascist regime of Mussolini 
But after Mussolini was uh, sent up north, uh, this monarch basically tried to take control, and uh, he wasn't doing everything that, you know, the geopolitical, strategical uh, groups such as the, you know, European powers wanted. And so, of course, he needed to be replaced. Same thing was happening in Germany. They didn't want uh, de Gaulle. Uh, And so there were different groups who were trying to bring in, you know, uh, anti-fascists, trying to bring in pro-monarchists, trying to bring in liberals, etc. And you got like three or four different groups that are all led by different OSS members that are all doing their own thing, that want to advance their own interests because of X, Y, or Z. You know, there were even some, some... And I question what a leftist-slash-socialist-slash-communist is in the eyes of R. Harris Smith, who he was a former research analyst for the CIA, uh, and then he became a political science uh, professor at the University of California, um, and uh, he served on the administration of, let me see, Senator George McGovern. So, I mean, I can't really speak to his class character, but I would figure this book was written in the 50s. It's, you know, from the perspective of a former CIA agent. I'm sure that there's some, you know, uh, anti-left bias. So, he speaks to the fact that even communists were a part of the OSS. Like, communists who would use the funds and the resources sometimes that the OSS and Donovan was willing to give them or that they would basically just steal because there is so much money, weapons, bombs, drugs, etc. that have gone missing that were never on the books for any of this because, again, they just had a blank check. But anyways, rambling now. There were communists who would take those resources and give them to the actual, like, radicals within their, you know, perspective uh, region And so the OSS basically ended up, you know, turning into a whole shit show. But then on top of that, each one of these OSS members, even Donovan himself, would go in front of, you know, Congress or go in front of, uh, you know, bodies of government and just fucking lie to them. Just straight up lie to them. And that's exactly what happens now with the CIA. This book talks about J. Edgar Hoover a lot. And it's like, he was doing the same thing. The CIA, the FBI, the, uh, you know, the OAS, the uh, USAID, the uh, uh, Endowment for Democracy, the uh, Heritage Foundation, all of these different groups, they do the same thing. They have their own uh, individual or particular interests which they want to advance and they therefore have contradictions that they run into between themselves and other members of the ruling class. This is also true among the working class. This is one of the most important things that we have to understand and study because if you look at just about every single revolution, and I'm talking proletarian and non-proletarian, if you look at every single revolution, there is attempts to bring different groups of people who are able to come to an allegiance on a certain point together to be able to advance their combined goal. And then usually what ends up happening is then those pre-existing contradictions come to the fore and you see that, you know, the loyalists 
and the uh, uh, patriots in America who wanted liberty and freedom and democracy, da 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 even though they wanted to be in charge and take control and rule the government, there were, uh, or I, I said loyalists and patriots in the same thing. Loyalists versus patriots, I'm pretty sure. But if I'm wrong, that's only because American history is stupid and this country has no right to exist, so I didn't quite pay attention in American history class. But anyways, the, uh, the contradictions between the different groups who led the supposed revolution on Turtle Island for, you know, turning the colonies into their own nation, um, that had many contradictions among that as well. You know, there were folks who didn't want to keep slavery. There were folks who wanted to keep a uh, less democratic system. You know, there were folks who were all for this idea of democracy. And so contradictions came to the fore. And now what we know, and Marx talks about this, Engels talks about this, plenty of others talk about this, is when revolutions are had, but they don't actually revolutionize the system. They don't actually overthrow the status quo. They don't actually, you know, destroy the system as it was. Every time that a new group is brought into the fold or takes control, the state apparatus molds itself and reforms itself to better be able to be prepared for if a similar situation were to arise again in you know, some examples we might think about democracy as a form of state. Lenin talks about this in many of his works, but especially State and Revolution, where he says, you know, democracy is a new form of the state. Democracy is a lie. Democracy is hypocrisy within a ruling class society. If you're talking about democracy, of course, the the most important question we have to ask is democracy for who? Because surely democracy has been a, you know, a flag that has been waved above our head and the heads of many across the world as this ideal society that we're supposedly, you know, building or a part of ourselves. And every time, you know, a socialist government has a revolution or every time a new election comes where you have some more quote-unquote progressive individuals in office, you hear, oh, they're coming for our democracy. They're coming for our democracy. And that's when you know that you know, the ruling class sometimes does this thing where it recognizes the average person doesn't catch that. Doesn't catch that when, you know, a progressive is talking about Medicare for all or a Green New Deal. They start saying they're coming for our democracy. The communists are coming. That that should be a red flag right there. We should understand that as them, you know, kind of taking the mask off. But we don't. And so, you know, they go on saying shit like that. Um... And so when they talk about they're coming for our democracy, they're not lying. When we tell them that we want to participate in government, we want to be the administrators of the state ourselves, we want to develop a new society, and we want to be able to build it through grassroots mass movements, they say they're coming for our democracy. Why? Because democracy is a part of, it was an adaptation, just like you know, it it was a mutation of the state 
in order to engulf all of the radical and revolutionary movements happening in whatever given region this democracy was developed and subsume them back into the system and subsume them back into this idea of thinking, you know, well, the system is how it is, so we just got to figure out how to make it within the system. And Lenin covers quite clearly in State and Revolution how democracy has only been democracy for the few, democracy for the slave owners under any given ruling class society, whether it be czarist Russia or, you know, Republican Germany, whether it be uh, the United States or whether it be Chile during the Pinochet supposed democracy or the, you know, supposed democracy in South Korea or the supposed democracy in, you know, uh, Ethiopia under the TPLF or the supposed democracy in Japan today. All of these different nations show us quite clearly a ruling class society where the few slave owners, whether they go by that name or not anymore, are in charge. And now they don't do it maybe through a gun to your head or through you know forcing you to starve. They might not do it through serfdom or slave labor, at least in you know a recognizable form. They might not do it through uh, adverse and aggressive, uh, you know, attacks on the working people, but now they do it through the polls. Now they do it through, you know, elections. Now they do it through democracy. But there are, uh, you know, clear distinctions and contradictions between a uh, electoral system in Venezuela and an electoral system here in the United States. That much must be clear. And if we are not willing to recognize that, if we want to throw away electoralism as a whole and say, you know, no, the Venezuelan people don't know what they're doing, the Bolivian people don't know what they're doing, the Cuban people don't know what they're doing, da 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 it screams of, you know, uh, ignorance, and it also screams of Western chauvinism, because these countries, time and time again, have shown us here in the Western states that uh, society doesn't have to look one way, and they have developed new forms, new pathways, new avenues to new worlds in ways that we here in the West choose uh, to ignore because our ruling class tells us they're not democratic. Because our ruling class tells us that, you know, that's the socialists taking over. It's, uh, you know, them telling us that these elections are fraudulent. And it's the imperialist propaganda which pervades our mind, which ultimately tells us that, you know, we can't have any form of elections ever. That's completely illogical. I mean, not to say that I'm over here saying, all right, guys, let's get to the ballot box come, you know, midterm elections in 2024. But if you're going to, you know, say that it's important to focus on politics, if you're going to say we need a political revolution, well, then one of the first things people need to do is involve themselves in politics. And I'm not saying go out and run or vote for the president and then that's that. But look at your local elections, look at your municipalities and the way that they are privatized, the way in which you're, you know, heating your electricity, your water plants, your, uh, you know, 
factories, your industrial regions, your uh, downtowns, your shops, your uh, banks. None of that is local. None of that is feeding into itself and helping the people in your local area. And so one of the first things we need to do is get people to understand that this is true, that the way in which politics and democracy are capitalized upon by the ruling class is to misinterpret what they really mean in our minds and convince us that as long as we're voting, as long as we are participating in some kind of discourse, as long as we're, you know, watching the news or whatever, we, we're doing better than the average person, so we don't have to care much more. But if you're going to sit here and tell me that it's important to vote, then I need you to also be doing everything else in the meantime between each and every election to get the people on the ballot, to get the people in power who are actually going to do what the masses need. Because that's where our real work is done. The ballot box in countries where they have had, you know, actual socialists, actual, you know, uh, uh, change be built within their societies by participating in elections, in those societies, it's very clear that where the actual work is done is the time in between each election. I mean, the reason why the socialists in Venezuela basically completely took over almost 30,000 elected offices is because in the years in between the elections, the socialists have done almost everything that they could to give the people almost everything that they've asked for, almost everything that they've needed. And so the work that is most important is the work that comes in between the elections. But the elections are the ways in which the people are thinking they're supposed to participate. Again, back to consciousness. I fucking got on a rambling point. God damn it. But anyways, if you look at elections as individual and uh, disconnected events, then yeah, it's not going to lead to much change. So a few things to point out uh, and we'll get back on track. So first and foremost, this is why it's important to have a concrete understanding of, you know, concrete conditions because... You know, the second point being that you can spy out the contradictions that exist between, again, the uh, Bolivian electoral or Venezuelan electoral system or the Nicaraguan electoral system and uh, the British one, you know, or the Canadian one. Um, Because these are situations where colonized people, imperialized people, take control of their own destiny and their own communities from their colonizers and the imperialists. Whereas in countries like, you know, the United States, you have the imperialists, the settlers, the uh, colonists. They are the ones who are, you know, actively colonizing and imperializing by their continued domination of the electoral uh, and governmental bodies of power. Um, and then the third point I want to say, and this will get us back on point, is this is why consciousness is so important, because you can see the different level of consciousness that these systems create, and that these material conditions allow for, and, uh, you know, the average person today thinks that if they vote, I mean, less than 50% of people even participate in the presidential elections and this is the one that we're advertised about every single year 
uh, even, you know, in between uh, uh, election season, because this is the one that we're convinced is, does the most change. But Congress is, if we're talking, you know, executive bodies of power at a federal level, Congress and the Supreme Court are really who make the decisions in the Senate. And then if you want to talk about, you know, the fact that then also all of this is ignoring local politics, all of this is ignoring the ways in which, you know, there are contradictions among local, county, state, and federal governments. Because this level of decentralization, this level of disintegration is what's leading to a continuation of the COVID, you know, uh, pandemic. It's what has led to a continuation of anti-trans, anti-LGBTQ, anti-black, anti-indigenous laws and legislation. It's also what allows for the continuation of, you know, anti-immigration laws and all kinds of uh, disastrous uh, extractive legislation that is allowed to be passed. And ultimately, all of these things uh, coincide with one another. And that's kind of why it's important to have a, a deep understanding of each one of these points. And, you know, we're talking about consciousness. The consciousness level that can be developed within our system is, is very narrow. Um, the average person believes that, in fact, it is important that we choose strong, capable leaders to, to bring us through to a better tomorrow. When, in fact, they've never made it seem as if the masses of people themselves could be their own strong leaders. Um, if you read the origin of the family, private property, and the state by Engels, and uh, I think it's also in the Communist Manifesto, uh, there's a mention of the fact that the average elected politician or, you know, representative within society has far more power than any of, you know, the current, uh, say, elders within an indigenous community or, you know, respected leaders of, you know, like communities themselves. However, they will never ever be able to uh, accomplish or they will never be able to receive as much respect and admiration and true support as these, you know, elders and leaders within communities. Because that's a different level of leadership. That's a different type of leadership, you know? And so when we talk about the need for change here in the United States, and we center so, you know, clearly on these huge uh, nationwide federal elections, which albeit lead to a lot of change. You know, it is not to say that these elections are unimportant because these elections lead towards legislation. These elections lead towards action. These elections lead towards 
you know, different representatives of this or that faction within the ruling class being capable to uh, pursue their objectives with clear, uh, designated, and agreed upon power. And so because of that, you know, it's important to recognize the, the Marx quote where he says, elections are that opportunity once in a while where the people get to decide which representative from the ruling class will do their uh, oppressing and exploiting. Um, and so <clears throat> when Marx says that, it's important that we understand that, but it's also important that we recognize that, you know, the average person doesn't even quite clearly understand what that means and is so convinced that they have to participate in these elections, you know, the the presidential ones. And so in that sense, we we still also want to be able to use that reality to our benefit by running independent candidates and stuff like that. But the difference is not thinking, A, that this is what's going to bring on the systemic change that we need, or B, thinking that we're going to win. But really what elections at that level can serve as is an opportunity to really see our army. You know, in I've talked about this before. Someone talked about it on Guerrilla History. I believe it was August Nymphs. Um, he mentioned that, you know, elections are that one opportunity where the socialists and the communists get to see how many people support them. At least, at least support their policies, you know, or support their uh, uh, programs and are willing at the very least to come out and vote for them. So in that sense, we have an opportunity with elections to learn this, to be able to understand where we're at, to be able to, you know, guide ourselves forward. So it's important that we use these platforms to push forward different uh, rhetoric and to actually push back against the bullshit that the ruling class normally says, you know? And so because that is really all we can do, we can't make that our sole focus. So don't, you know, misinterpret anything I've said for saying we need a fucking, we just need to get a socialist elected president. No, that's not how it works in a settler colonial nation. We have to understand the circumstances we're in. But we do have to understand that people's consciousness can only really truly be raised through practical steps, actions, and development in real time. So when, you know, socialists or I guess you'd call them left uh, wing candidates are able to get up on the TV and say, you know, every single human being deserves a house to live in, deserves health care, deserves food on their table. That's quite different than the shit that, you know, the often leading class group, whether it be the Bushes, the Clintons, the uh, Bidens or the Obamas, whether it be the, you know, Pelosi's, the uh, McConnell's, the Josh Howley's or the AOC's. 
uh, it's quite different than what the average representative in our capitalist society is going to go out and say. So that's important. But the only, the only role that those large-scale elections really can serve, at least in this moment in time, I believe, and again, all of this is speculative because I'm, I'm learning just along with you, but all it can really seem to serve as is, like I said, the ability to count our armies. We now know, because of the last mayoral election in New York City, that at least 26,000 people believe in the program that Kathy Rojas, the Party for Socialism and Liberation's candidate that ran for mayor in New York City, uh, put forward. And now what's crazy is she wasn't even allowed to, like, debate. She wasn't invited to any of the debates, so she wasn't able to actually get up in front of you know, large uh, mainstream audiences and actually uh, speak to them. So what that means is that, you know, social media and word of mouth, as well as active organizing by uh, groups like the PSL and those who supported the Rojas campaign uh, were able to do. And that's incredible. And now you know that at least 26,000 people in that area might be open and willing to organizing. And now again, like we were talking about before, that intermediate period between the uh, you know elections and the next one is the time for organizing. Lenin and many others talk about the need for revolutionary opposition, but Lenin also speaks about the fact that we cannot simply expect to only and always ever be a revolutionary party of opposition because in fact at some point we have to take power at some point we have to wield uh you know the control of the society we live in that's the point that is the objective is to actually get to a space where we're in charge so in saying that what i'm meaning to say is that now the goal must be further in the consciousness. Okay, why did we lose the election? Okay, you know, what did you believe in? How are we going to be able to implement this now that we're not in office? Would we have been able to implement it while we are in office? What are the individuals in office right now doing? How are they failing the people? Da 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 da. All of this is something that we can do in the intermediate period. Uh, between the elections. And, you know, that's kind of more important that like grassroots work that actually brings people to a practical, actionable understanding, rather than simply, you know, maybe uh, a cheap understanding in in word, where, you know, for example, you ever talk to someone about like maybe math, or science or something. Um, My example is my brother, whenever he spoke of time travel, he understood it to a level where he could explain it to you like you're a child, right? And as you're listening to it, you're like, shit, that's, you're so right. You're so right. But then as soon as you turn around and somebody asks you, you know, what were you just talking about? And you try to explain it to them. You're like, uh, well, you see, like, cause it's, it's a very complex thing. And so, you know, you can understand it while you're listening to it. But then when you go to take action, when you go to talk about it yourself, it's a little bit more difficult. We need people to have an understanding that is in-depth. 
we need people to have an understanding that when the time comes, they can take power into their own hands. Once we are able to lead our revolution forward, the people need to be capable of being the bastions and the uh, actors of that revolution themselves. That's our goal, right? And so if the average person only understands politics to an extent that, you know, we want to have a better president than we had last time, then we're kind of failing the people. We're not doing enough to raise the consciousness of the masses here in, in, you know, the West. And there's a lot to be said for that. I could probably do a whole 10 episodes on that. But again, even I don't have the best understanding because I'm not in the streets doing the shit like many other people are today. And that was, you know, something else I wanted to hit on, which was, you know, consciousness really comes from experience. That's why Marxists uh, oftentimes speak about the importance of praxis, the importance of putting theory into action. And so, you know, what that really means is like, okay, it's great that and incredibly important that we have an in-depth concrete analysis of the concrete conditions we live in today under our capitalist system here on Turtle Island. Uh, But on top of that, we also got to know what the fuck to do. So like, if we just know that capitalism is bad and we just know that the people who are in charge suck and never do anything for, you know, us, but we don't know what to do going forward, we're kind of fucked, you know? And so the only way that we can really practically learn what works and what doesn't work is through experimentation, just like with anything else, right? So the experimentation that Marxists or really revolutionaries have to participate in is in the streets revolution. You know, unlike uh, a scientist who has a, you know, a lab that they can go into and conduct experiments, a revolutionary has the revolution in order to understand and grow their own experience and their, uh, to really be able to guide that experimentation. But it is only struggle that actually leads the people to an understanding because as uh, the folks over on Give the People What They Want, that's Vijay Prashad, uh, Zoe PC, and Prashant R from uh, Zoe and Prashant are from People's Dispatch. Uh, VJ is from Globetrotter and the Tricontinental. Um, they do a, a show called Give the People What They Want that I really like because it gives me uh, some understanding of what's going on all over the world. So they were talking about how in India, the amount of solidarity and the amount of concrete understanding of the entire system that is at play, uh, that took place when the Indian farmers took to the streets and uh, effectively got the Modi government to say that they were going to repeal the three uh, privatization farming laws, um, that came also with a lot of experience, with a lot of understanding, and with a lot of solidarity that, again, wouldn't have been able to be developed had they not taken to the streets, had they not had their practical action. So although, as you know, many people are correctly pointing out, 
there might be much more to do because, you know, they are only to this point, uh, they have only been able to get uh, word about the repealing of the farm law, whereas they are asking for a concrete development of, uh, I actually wrote this down, what they were hoping for. They, uh, they're demanding that the only way that they can actually believe this is that the, uh, if concrete steps are taken towards minimum support prices and compensation for the death of not only the farmers that have died, uh, you know, in just kind of years leading up to this movement, but also folks who had gotten harmed by police and by the state and uh, had died of, you know, starvation and things like that during this struggle. Uh, the families are, uh, you know, demanding to see some form of justice and that justice really being that what these folks fought for be put through in action, not just in word. And so that's kind of, you know, a level of consciousness that couldn't have been gotten to through just simple participation in a once every four years electoral, uh, you know, process especially one such as ours that is wrought with misinformation and propaganda. Um, so, yeah, anyways, this is kind of the overall point I'm trying to make here is that, you know, we got, we have a decent understanding. Those of us who call ourselves socialists, communists, etc., we have a decent understanding of the world around us. But we can only really get that in-depth understanding through actual leading of a struggle. And so that's what we need to really start doing. And the only way that we can really start doing that is by organizing. Now, I've talked about this a lot before on the show, so I'm not going to get into it too much. But what organizing really is, is it's taking the system as it is, taking the participants within it, meaning the masses of people, meaning the actual um, uh, ruling class individuals, meaning those who are, um, you know, leading different struggles for uh, women's liberation, uh, trans justice, black, brown, and indigenous freedom, etc. And trying to bring them together, trying to get them all to, uh, you know, as we were discussing before with like, you know, say those who participated in the American quote revolution, who had to find people who would participate with them, even though after they had their revolution, they still had things that they contradicted one another on and wanted differently. We also need to do the same. We need to find ways to find a class struggle. Uh, we have to find ways to build a movement intended to unite the masses of exploited and oppressed people towards one goal, and that goal being a socialist revolution. Why? Because if we're talking about a historical development or a revol of a revolution, there have been revolutions that weren't socialist. There have been revolutions that ha weren't uh, you know, popularly led, that weren't uh, meant to improve the lives of the masses. There have been revolutions that have happened in the past that have just been simply a switching of faces of the ruling class elites, such as 
you know, uh, a lot of folks are saying what's happening in Ethiopia is somewhat similar, is that the TPLF and the Ethiopian government are two different members of the ruling elites who want to maintain that dominance over the masses of exploited and oppressed people within Ethiopia. Um, a similar thing happens in many revolutions before. But if we look at a historical development of revolution itself, right? If we take a concrete study of these uh, revolutions, we see contradictions and differences between them. We see the differences between a proletarian revolution and a Republican one. We see the, and I mean Republican in the sense of for a republic, not the Republican National Party here in the United States. Um, we see a difference between the revolution in Paris in 1871, known as the Paris Commune, and the revolution in 1917 in Russia. We even see a difference between the revolutions of 1917 in Russia, the ones in February and the one in October. And most importantly, we see the on-the-ground grassroots that work that is done in between those revolutions. You know, we were talking about the importance of doing it in between elections. But if you're trying to build a revolution, you know, you're going to have, I don't want to say stages, because, you know, sometimes that's misunderstood. But that is really what I mean. You know, in Russia, you had the bourgeois revolution that had to happen in order to show the masses of people that in fact the Mensheviks, the socialist revolutionaries and others were not true to their word. The same will most likely happen in many different circumstances as it has before. You know, you have these individuals who are parts of the ruling class who will lead rebellions, uprisings, who will sponsor uh, government uh, reforms, etc. Sometimes at the behest of the CIA, the USAID, the IMF, the, uh, you know, OAS, et cetera, et cetera. But then you also have revolutions where, although there might be leaders, you know, maybe a vanguard party, it is a popular sentiment that they are capitalizing on and pushing a revolutionary movement into its most revolutionary form. Now, all of this can only be done, again, through a concrete understanding of concrete conditions, meaning if we want our revolution here on Turtle Island to achieve everything that it needs to, if we want to give, you know, land back to indigenous people, if we want to see black and brown liberation, if we want to see women, trans folks, and LGBTQ plus folks living within a society that is also built for them, if we want to fundamentally change the entire structure of the society we live in today and work on resolving the contradictions that exist among the working people, then we have a lot of work ahead of us. But the only way only way that we are going to be able to achieve this is through revolution. And it will be that revolution 
that will help guide us to understand these contradictions. It will be that revolution that will give us the actual uh, material ability and basis to resolve the contradictions, let alone understand them. And so, you know, it's, it's quite crucial. It's quite crucial then that we recognize that the only way that we can successfully do this is through really, really, really dedicating ourselves to study, dedicating ourselves to practice, dedicating ourselves to building the revolution through understanding those revolutions in the past and also understanding the situations, the circumstances, the contradictions, and the connections within our society today. This is really important. And it's also really difficult. And that's why none of us can do it alone. Um, I'm really trying to find my phone right now. I set it down somewhere and I want to um, look something up. But basically to try to narrow out my point, really fine-tune it and finish it out, if if we want to see this revolution succeed, right, if we want to see the end to oppression and exploitation everywhere, then we have a lot that we need to do, that we need to understand. We have a lot of people that we need to connect with, that we need to organize, that we need to raise the consciousness of. We have a lot to do. And now that's not to say like, oh, freak out, we're never going to succeed. But that is to say that there is a lot that needs to be done. We have a revolution that needs to be built. We have a need for a dialectical, a historical, and also a theoretical understanding of that revolution, of revolutions in general, of contradictions among people, of you know, material bases to oppression. That's a lot. And, you know, in history, it's never gone well the first time. It's, It's never just taken right off. It's never like, you know, there's a situation that's going on and you bring it up once and everybody that's facing that situation is like, yeah, that's actually perfectly correct, and, and we should definitely do that. Um, if you look at the different movements for liberation that have happened not only here on Turtle Island, but all across the Americas, if you look in Africa, if you look at Asia, if you even look at Europe and Australia, you can see that different groups have tried to take hold of the situation and be able to build a revolution. Now, what again, I, I don't want to repeat myself too much, but what that revolution has looked like has been different everywhere. But at the end of the day, 
we know what our revolution must be. It must be a socialist one. It must be a proletarian revolution. And so if we want a proletarian revolution, if we want to actually be able to succeed in achieving our goals of actually liberating the masses of people from exploitation and oppression all across the world, of ending the system of violence known as capitalism, known as imperialism, if we want to see the earth survive and the world be able to move forward, then we have to understand that there are ways in which we need to go about doing this. All across the world, masses of people are learning actively through struggle how to build tactics and strategies of a revolution. But it is not our goal, nor is it our role as folks within tur- you know, the belly of the beast on Turtle Island. It is not our goal as Westerners to look across the world and say, you know, this is how you do a revolution. This is how you not, you don't do a revolution. This, you know, group here is doing it wrong and this group here is doing it right. And I tend to do that. I tend to point out, you know, ways in which these contradictions come to the fore. And the difference is, you know, I'm not sitting here saying, I know what the fuck I'm talking about. These guys are all assholes. I'm trying to say, look at these differences, you know, watch as they play out and see how it is that they succeed or fail in achieving their objectives. That is all. If you aren't willing to do that much, how do you expect we're going to have a revolution here? How do you expect we're going to actually change our situation? How do you expect then, if you know you don't want to look at the differences between revolutions that are happening or uprisings or rebellions or whatever you want to call them, if you don't want to try to take uh, the time to study them, well, then, my friend, you're only going to, you know, fail. You're only going to watch as us here in, uh, you know, the settler colonial state of the United States and those all over the world, if, if we don't, uh, how do I want to say this? Because I, I want to wrap this up nicely in a little bow. If, if we're intending on succeeding in what I've talked to and what I continue to talk about in this show, then we need to A, build revolutionary mass organizations, B, build dual power, which is a system outside of the existing uh, supposed power structure that can provide the masses of people things that they need, that can put people in power, that can actually change material situations on a local level. We have to build self-defense groups. We have to build a group of individuals that are willing to take on one of the most important roles, which is the defender 
of the people. We need to build avenues of what might be normally considered mutual aid, but ultimately is just connectivity and solidarity meant to be able to help alleviate the stress and the symptoms of the capitalist system in a collective fashion. The best way that any of this can be done is through active organizing, through practical struggle, through conversation, through demonstrations, through legislation and petitions, through knocking on doors, through community gardens, through going on the street and handing out food, money, clothes, and you know, your time to houseless folks, to uh, you know, disabled people who are not actually looked at as human beings. If you understand the dehumanization that happens to uh, disabled people, and you understand the dehumanization that happens to houseless people, you have to understand that the humanization, the actual practical help, takes a, you know, it takes a community to solve that problem. It takes a mass movement. And it really takes a mass organization intent on overthrowing capitalism, overthrowing the imperialists, you know, removing them from any reality that would allow them to cease our uh, objectives to stop our our goals and then to revolutionary change revolutionarily change the situation by giving the masses of people themselves power and control over their own communities resources circumstances and destinies but if we are doing that we can't be just united against capitalism we have to be building towards socialism because socialism theoretically speaking and also historically speaking, has been the only system, scientific socialism that is, has been the only system that has been actually capable and, uh, you know, succeeded at resolving the contradictions among the people and among the, uh, and also solving the inequality between the people. So, yeah, I, uh, I think that that's that. I hope that this episode made sense and was more on point. I hope that you enjoyed the show. I hope it was educational and I hope you will send me a, uh, you know, detailed description as to what you agree with and disagree with and, and what you would have said. Um, this episode obviously is basically the main frame of the type of episode I normally record. So I'm sure we will be having more discussion on this going forward. And I'm sure that there will be times where I might correct or change some things that I've said here or that I've said before, and that is because as time moves, as things change, as, you know, uh, the dialectical process occurs, as, uh, you know, the true Marxist in me should say, (laughs) Um, as that happens, consciousness rises, and so that's what we're going for. We want to educate ourselves, and we want to educate others. We want to use that education and actually educate for and through not just words, books, discussions, you know, YouTube videos, podcasts, but actually through building the revolution by actually building a socialist society. Because when you see socialism, breakfast programs, community self-defense, when you see an actual revolution happening in real time, that is the truest educator. 
And I say that from reading books. So I can't wait and I can't imagine what it's going to be like when we here get to see that in real time. Um, long live the people's revolution. Long live the people's struggles. Long live scientific socialism. And uh, until next time, folks, I hope you are all well. Please stay safe and healthy during this holiday season. If you can and uh, feel inclined to, I just got my booster shot yesterday. I feel perfectly fine. I had a little headache. I had a little fever. It was at 99.3, that is all. I drank a lot of water. I drank a lot of lemon water with honey. And uh, I rested. And I feel perfectly fine other than the fact that my arm hurts. Uh, please keep wearing your mask. There are mask mandates popping up all over the place. The least you can fucking do is wear a mask. Please wear a mask. And other than that, you know, uh, let's have ourselves a little proletarian revolution as a treat. Why don't we, huh? Alrighty, folks. Great talking with you as always. Love you all. Peace and solidarity. Stay well, stay safe, and stay revolutionary. Peace.